everybody, it's David Creek. I want to thank you for listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. We're coming to you from the Philadelphia area. And you can check out our website at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Oh man, I want to keep singing. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful to be here today. You know, of all of the shows that have been on television throughout the years, my absolute favorite is the original Twilight Zone. I love its eeriness. I love the spooky music that they used to play on that show. You had Rod Serling's essays at the beginning and at the end of every episode. I just love everything about that old show. Well, my favorite episode was one of the very first ones that had ever aired. It was called The 16 Millimeter Shrine. And in true Twilight Zone fashion, it just so happened to air on October 23rd, 1959. 63 years ago tonight. And it told the story of this aging film star whose name was Barbara Trenton. Barbara Trenton was a relic from a different time in Hollywood. Now once upon a time in the old vaudeville days of Hollywood, she was a leading lady who commanded top billing. And yet that was a long, long time ago. Well, she is now far past her prime, and everybody sees it except for her. Well, she's so obsessed with her past that she turns her living room into a makeshift movie theater. She darkens the room with these heavy drapes. She secludes herself from the outside world, and all that she does, both night and day, is watch her old movies from the early 1930s over and over and over again on a 16-millimeter film projector. Well, she does this for so long that by the end of the episode, she actually believes that it's 1933 all over again. And that she's still that same 25-year-old icon who once upon a time appeared upon the silver screen in those films. Well, one day her agent brings her into a meeting with a Hollywood producer who is offering her a role in a brand new film. But when she learns that it is a cameo and that she would be really playing an old woman, well, she has just too much pride and arrogance to accept the role. She storms out of the office of, of, of that producer. She locks herself away in her theater room where she sits in the dark before the 16-millimeter shrine to her past, to her youth, and to days of a bygone era. And at last her agent says, Don't you know what you've done? You've built yourself a graveyard here. You're living in the past. You're wishing for things that are dead and full of cobwebs. And for the whole entire episode, she doesn't even realize it, but, but her stardom has withered away. And her career 
is now dead. And in Revelation chapter 3, we continue in our series in the letters that Jesus gives to his churches of the seven cities of, of ancient Asia Minor. Revelation chapter 3, and beginning of verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis writes, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God, and who has the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Well, ordinarily, whenever a church received a letter like this, it was just a letter, you know. But in this instance, as Sardis receives what they receive from Jesus, this, this is a much different situation. As they hear these words read aloud to them, as they, they hold whatever had been written upon this, they don't even know it, but this isn't a letter. It's a death certificate. Jesus isn't merely talking to his church, but he begins by eulogizing them. Now, the city of Sardis was, was said to be the very oldest of these seven cities that we read about in Revelation. They had a long and a storied history of opulence and invincibility. Where the city stood 1,500 feet up in elevation on this high and lofty hill that for ages had been deemed impossible to conquer. And yet that was a long, long time ago. Sardis has fallen multiple times ever since, and in humiliating fashion at that. And everybody else around them knows this, and they see this. That is, except for Sardis themselves. And I mean, just as it was in the city of Sardis, so it was in the church of Sardis. For a very long time, this is a church that has been enslaved to the past. It's a church that has been resting on their laurels of a bygone time and a bygone era. And you see, it's not that the church at Sardis is sick or that they need a pump-up talk. Jesus reveals to them, he unveils to them, and the revelation to the church at Sardis is this, is that you are a church that is dead. Jesus says you don't have a pulse. And so as Jesus addresses his church in Sardis, he, he does so as a doctor standing over a corpse. As a flatline wails on a monitor. The great physician looks at his angels and he slowly and he sadly shakes his head no. And then he pronounces them dead. As Jesus says, this was a church that had a reputation that they were a living, vivacious church. And yet Jesus, with his all-seeing, all-perceiving eye, he sees them just exactly as they truly are. They were a spiritual graveyard. They were a morgue with a steeple. They were a mound of ash inside of an urn. Now, once upon a time, this, this church was, was absolutely alive and they were flourishing. 
And yet Jesus reveals that, you know, that, that, that was true, but that was a long time ago. Sardis is dead today, and, and really today is all that really matters. And I mean, here's where all of this gets very urgent. And it gets very real for anyone who dares to read these words. And it's this. If this is something that was possible for a church there, this is something that is very, very possible for the church here. That what happened in Sardis is in fact very possible to happen in Westchester or at any other church who hears what Jesus says to this church. Sardis is very valuable to church history because they are a living testament. They testify to us that as alive as a church may have been in some bygone era, it's possible for that church to be absolutely dead right now or tomorrow or in the future. And you know, it just makes us wonder, how can a church possibly die? It almost seems impossible to us. I mean, how does a church die? Well, the first century world did everything that it could to exterminate the church. We read in the book of Acts how the Sanhedrin tried everything to, to run Christianity out of Jerusalem, but it kept on multiplying, right? As it arrives on, on Roman soil, you know, the Romans tried to, to kill Christianity, tried to feed lions Christianity, and yet it was not destroyed. Even the devil himself, still to this day, has tried everything within his arsenal to destroy the Christian church. And yet to all of those who have left this world trusting in Jesus, they have been overcomers. Even in death itself, Jesus' church cannot be killed and it cannot possibly die. And that's because the holy nation of Jesus Christ is, is God's eternal kingdom and his body. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, Isaiah says, there will be no end. Amen and amen. No, a congregation cannot die because of outside opposition. And yet a church can die because of internal decay, though. You see, it can die if we stop holding fast to the truth of heaven. And we begin holding fast to the lies and to the ways of this earth. A congregation will die if it stops being formed by Jesus Christ and by the Sermon on the Mount. And she chooses instead to be formed by this world. Or by a preacher somewhere. Or by political personalities of the empire around us. A congregation can and will die through apathy and through arrogance or through despair and selfish motives. And I think that a congregation can also die if it, if it succumbs to nostalgia. Now, as we think about nostalgia, nostalgia is full of pleasant memories. It has many, a powerful reminder from the past that we can take with us into the future. And yet if a church lives and dies in the past, 
If it is enslaved to the good old days of 1951 and 1977 and 1991, and it's no longer living in 2022, let alone in the 21st century, that is not a living church of Jesus Christ. It's just some sad, pathetic old woman sitting alone in the dark, hypnotized by the 16 millimeter shrine of what once was in her life. These are the kind of things that can cause a church to wither and to decay and to waste away. And, and you know, regardless of however that occurs in a church, you know, the result is always tragic. I'll never forget receiving a letter from a person in my family who, who was a part of a church who I knew of, who I used, used, used to attend that withered away and died. And the way that she described it was, it was sadder than any funeral I've ever been to. And that's because Jesus left heaven in order to die on earth. So so as he says, so that we could have life, and that we could have life abundantly. In order, as, as the Apostle Paul says in his letter to Ephesus, That even when we were dead in our sins, Christ made us alive together with him. And yet the scary revelation and the eerie revelation and the unveiling to the church at Sardis or to any other church for that matter is that if we are are not people of diligence and vigilance, it is possible for a once thriving, flourishing church to be a dead church in the days ahead. Dead churches, full of dead worship, listening to a dead preacher preaching dead sermons, worship gatherings that are billed as worship gatherings, but they're nothing more than a religious um, funeral service. And I believe this is what is going on at the church at Sardis. And you know, something else that this reveals to me is that the way that God defines a living church and a thriving church is so foreign to the way that that we as human beings define a living church. In the early first century, I mean, who, who had a more sterling reputation than the scribes and the Pharisees? I mean, they could quote enormous chunks of Scripture, hours on end, right? They prayed the most elegant prayers. They um, traveled over land and sea, giving to the poor and being generous and tithing in a very generous manner. But, but listen to how Jesus addresses them. Or in Matthew chapter 23, he, he says to them in Matthew 23, 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Here, here is their revealing and their unveiling. He says that you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful to all the world, but within they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to other people, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, Jesus sees us human beings exactly as we truly are. 
And I think as a society, if we were to be asked, what is the characteristic of a healthy church? I think that modern Christianity would almost universally reply to that. Well, a living church is one that has, you know, it's, it's a huge building that has, has over a thousand members in it. And you walk inside and, and, and I'm a singing is Broadway caliber. And that can be a good thing. You know, the singing is Broadway caliber. They, they have a minister who is world famous. He's, he's written a thousand books and he's got a net worth of $25 million, drives a Rolls Royce. From my earliest memories, I remember growing up in Churches of Christ where, where I always heard that the three most important things in any church are, what is the square foot of the building? What is the attendance numbers? And how much money does that church have? And I think so often in our culture, the criteria is how big and how loud how bombastic and noisy and expensive something is. This is really what determines whether a church is alive or if they're dead. When Amanda and I were um, in Florida a month ago, I, I spoke and I caught up with, with a fellow minister there. And he was crestfallen as he said that, that last week on Sunday morning there were just 29 or 30 people there. I've been there many times as well. Because after all, as Americans, we are builders, aren't we? We build our, our cathedrals big, and we, and we want to see them absolutely packed. And that's, that's, that's a lot of good in that um, wish and desire. And yet at the same time, in our, our haste to fill every single square inch of our cathedrals to capacity, we keep on forgetting this fact. At the churches that we read about in New Testament Scripture, these were not huge American megachurches meeting in, in huge religious palaces. These were tiny little house churches who were cramming into one another's living rooms. I mean, seriously, how many people could you have fit in these house churches? Ten? Maybe 20 people if it was a wealthy person's house. I mean, listen, it is our prayer and our, our desire that as many people as possible see Jesus in us and come to a faith in Jesus Christ. And yet as long as that is what we are, are living for, a congregation of 20 or 30 or, or 80 or 90 should never despair. Because after all, even that is larger than these churches in, of, of Ephesus and Smyrna and a Pergamon. What determines a living, thriving church has nothing to do with the square feet of a building or with the numbers on an attendance chart. But rather, whether there are just three people in that church or 300,000 people in that church, here is what God is looking for. Is this a church that, that is loving me with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are they loving each other with agape love? Are they placing the interests of their sisters and brothers far above their very own? 
Are they loving their neighbor as themselves? Are they seeking justice? Are they kind to the poor and to the foreigner and to the outcast? Is this a person who lives and who breathes my Beatitudes? Is it a church that is filled with the fruits of my Holy Spirit? Are they treating others as they themselves wish to be treated? You see, this is what matters to God. And about a year ago, I I heard about a church that that once, not that long ago, had 12,000 members in it. I mean, imagine that, 12,000 people in one church. They had 15 campuses scattered across four states, and praise God, that is wonderful. They had a celebrity minister. They had more professional video cameras than NBC did. Wrap your mind around that. They had better cameras than NBC. And yet even though they had 12,000 members, and they had all of these nice, shiny, expensive things, In 2022, that church no longer exists. They shut their doors because it came out that that this was an environment, a very um, toxic religious environment of abuse and of arrogance. We see a church of 12,000 having all of these people and resources, and yet it was a dead church. And yet I've sat in a house church of three people on the other side of the world. And it was a room full of spirits. Whether we are many or we are few, God always has and always will be so much more interested in the internal character of our souls rather than in the external religious cosmetics and all of the fancy pyrotechnics that we concoct. And yet here is the good news that I'm always getting to each week. Well, the bad news is, is that this was a dead church, Jesus says. And yet even to this dead church, Jesus says, Jesus shows us that our God is the God of resurrection. He is the God of resuscitation, of reconciliation, where where he says that the one who has the seven spirits of God, Now, I don't pretend to fully understand exactly what that means. I hear that to mean the imagery of the power and the holiness of God in all of its mighty perfection. He says the one who holds the the seven spirits of God and who has his angels and the people of his church securely in the palm of his hand, he is extending his grace yet again. Where he says in verse 2, he begins with just two words. He says, wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And so he says, remember then what you received and what you heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Well, the phrase for wake up that he uses here means to keep watch. It means to be on the alert. And how 
How this church would have heard this is, is commentary on their city. Because way back in the glory days of Sardis, you know, back when they used to think that they were invincible, there had been a Persian person who was looking up at the city of Sardis. When all of a sudden a um, soldier's helmet came falling down, a soldier came down, scooped it up, and then he entered through a hidden passageway that led directly into the city. Well, the enemy goes back and he speaks to King Cyrus of Persia. And then that night, Cyrus's army walks in, creeps into Sardis, and they completely overthrow the, the, you know, the whole entire city. Sardis fell while it was sound asleep. You see, they were so overconfident and so prideful that they didn't even guard the city. Some 300 years later, the, the exact same thing happens again. Pride and overconfidence. And what Jesus is revealing to his church is that what, what has happened in your city about falling asleep and getting conquered, this is what is happening to you spiritually as Christians. And so he's saying to them, keep watch. He's, he's saying, pray. Wake up, be vigilant, and don't fall asleep at the post. And that's because, as, as we all know, the spiritual forces of darkness, they, they know exactly where the hidden passageways are to our hearts and to our minds. And they know exactly how to attack us when we lay down the full armor of God. And so he says, be watchful. Jesus also says, remember. Remember the good news about Jesus that you heard. He says, remember the gift of the Holy Spirit that, that you now have indwelling you as you came up out of the waters from your baptism. He's saying, remember the gift of salvation and the grace of God and take it with you every single day. Then he says, repent. Repent. Now, I think my generation especially hears that word repent, and we just kind of wince, don't we, guys? Because we've seen so many angry religious people repent, you know, just all they say is repent. And yet, what Jesus means when he says repent is to put on a brand new mind. It's an invitation to, to learn to actually think and to, and to live just as Jesus did with the mind of Christ. And that's because after all, as Jesus says here, he's coming as a thief comes. And there will be no greater joy in the hearts of those people when Jesus finds faith upon the earth at his return. And then at last, to the small minority of people who are still awake in this church, Jesus says in verse 4, And yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers, Jesus says, they will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And you know, this was also in commentary to what was going on in Sardis. 
Sardis had this huge shrine in its temple to Artemis, who was um, um, a female deity. Artemis had been the goddess of fertility. And every year, her priestesses would, would march up and down the streets of Sardis wearing white robes. And for all of the men wanting to be a priestess in this cult, <laughs> it was a very graphic and a very violent procedure. I'll just let you use your imagination, okay? <laughs> I will spare you all of the gory details, but, but to make a very long and disgusting story short, by the end of the ceremony, their robes would not be so white anymore. As Jesus says, they would be soiled, stained, and sullied. And yet, so all of those who conquer Jesus makes a promise. And he says, they will not walk with some fake god of, of stone or, or of wood up and down the street, but, but rather they will walk with a living God in white robes. You see, white is the color of acquittal. And he promises that I will never blot their name out of the book of life. Domitian had been an emperor who was so you know, hated at the end of his life that he was literally chiseled out of marble blocks in the city. It would be like if we were to just, just remove a president out of our history books from, from like 300 years ago. You know? And yet Jesus says to all of those who remain faithful to me until the very end, their name will remain in the book of life. And that's because Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother and sister, son and daughter. He's not ashamed to call us his friends. But rather, he is the God who calls each and every one of us by name. And as he promises here, so he will do one day, that he will confess all of his faithful's names there before his Father and before the angels. And so as we close this morning, you know, there were two very different responses in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of the crucifixion of Christ, weren't there? We had the response and the outpouring of peace and love coming from Jesus after he had bowed himself down in prayer and fervently prayed that the will of his Father would be done, even when he didn't want to do it. And then you have the outpouring response of violence and anger and cowardice and betrayal of the guys who couldn't keep watch with Jesus for even an hour because they kept falling asleep in their sorrow. My brothers and sisters, we have something very precious this morning. It's one of the most precious things that we have. We have a reputation. We have the reputation that we are the church of Christ. Amen. Everybody on this street, everybody who drives up and down this, this street sees it on our sign. This is the church of Christ. Amen. That's great. And yet, what about our hearts? What are we living for when we're not around each other and it's on Tuesday morning? I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't want to be a church that is enslaved to the good old days. 
I don't want to be a church that is, is the church of the 16 millimeter shrine. I want to be the living church of Jesus Christ in 2022. And I want to remain the living church of Jesus Christ all the days of my life. He says to you and me, he says, remember what you have received, what you have heard, and keep it all the days of your life. And so Jesus calls you and he calls me that he who has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.